Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights, and we, uh, we are jumping back into our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians, this letter written from a man named Paul to a five-year-old church in the city of Corinth, and there, there was a presenting issue and a deeper undercurrent issue that motivated the writing of this letter. The presenting issue on the surface uh, was a division had set into the church, and it, it had tentacles all over the place. But underneath that, the, the deeper undercurrent issue was that they were taking their communal cues, their this-is-how-to-live-life cues, more from Corinth than they were from Christ. And so Paul writes this letter, which we've said is not primarily a set of individual teachings, nor is it primarily a set of teachings for individuals, but it's a letter, a book about community formation. And today, uh, we pick up in chapter 6, uh, not 16, that's not true, 15, uh, right where we left off a month ago. And so let's, uh, let's begin like this. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a, a fairly well-known British preacher back in the mid-1900s. Um, and, and he would often, in sermons, he would ask a question, a fairly simple and straightforward question. He, he would say this. He would say, are, are, you a, are you a Christian? I want to do his British accent, but I can't, so I'm not going to try. Are, are you a Christian? If you say yes, why? How, how do you know? How do you know? I'm 40 now. I remember being 22 and being asked that question. I remember it being pretty intimidating, pretty uncomfortable to be asked that question. But what I'd like to do right now is I'd like to turn. I'd like to ask you that question. Are, are you a Christian? Are you? Are you a Christian? If you say yes, how do you know? How do you know? Why? Why? Why am I starting out like this? Why am I starting out this question? Because in chapter 15, the first part of chapter 15, the text that we're looking at today, Paul is going to lay a foundation for where he's going to go in the rest of chapter 15. And in this foundation he's laying, it's where Paul begins and it's where Paul ends. It's where he begins and where he ends. So here's what was going on. Um, there were some in the church in Corinth who were saying there, there is no such thing as resurrection. The resurrection from the dead simply does not happen. There is no such thing as resurrection from the dead, which would have meant that not even Jesus had been raised from the dead. And so in chapter 15, Paul is going to lay this foundation. He's going to step in and he's going to lay a foundation with three things. One, one, the necessity of the resurrection. Two, evidence for the resurrection. And then three, the effect of the resurrection. So necessity, evidence, effect of the resurrection. And in doing so, and in doing so, he's going to answer and address Martin Lloyd-Jones' question. But we'll get to that. Let's go, not Joe, let's go, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. All right, so here's what is interesting. Here's what I find interesting. Paul is writing and he's speaking into a community who are denying the resurrection from the dead and therefore denying Jesus' resurrection. And he begins with a redefinition, redefinition of redefining what salvation is. Now, if you're new to Christianity or you're not a Christian, the word salvation uh, might might be a bit uh, confusing. Why is that in there? It might even be a bit offensive. Uh, but I would just submit to you that uh, 
uh, uh, looking for salvation is just kind of common language. If you, if you watch movies, listen to music, um, you'll hear things like, I, I simply could not live without this person. You'll, you'll hear stories of, uh, you know, my life was like this, uh, I was a wreck, and then this person entered my life, and now my life has been what it is now. True story, last night at dinner, heartbreaking story, but true story. Last night at dinner, uh, we're sitting there, and uh, we hear the story of these two sisters, one of them who just passed away from complications, uh, from some issues dealing with her weight. The other sister um, uh, said this, um, said, listen, I've had the same issue she's had, but I didn't go down the road that my sister went down because I had a husband who would grab me and look me in in the face and say, I think you're beautiful and that's what saved me. My, my point is that salvation language is just kind of common language. We all have categories for it, and Paul is stepping in. He's redefining because ancient Corinthian culture, they had a definition of what salvation was as well. They had their own cultural definition of what it meant to uh, be saved, to have salvation. This is, this is what it was. This is from Gordon Fee, who's, who's just been so helpful on our letter to Corinthians. He said this, um, because the Corinthian definition was to escape the body. Salvation meant to escape the body. The body was unnecessary and unwanted and would finally be destroyed. Thus for them, salvation meant a final ridding of oneself of the body, not because it was evil, but because it was inferior and beneath them. See, chapter 15 is actually not a, uh, not not a new topic in that it's disconnected from what came before. Uh, Paul has this structural marker, this, this phrase now concerning that he uses to, to pivot and shift topics throughout the letter. It shows up in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 12, and then again in chapter 16. And so this is connected to a broader section from chapter 12 through uh, beginning of chapter 16. And it began like this. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1. If you, if you were to go back and read the, the English translation, it would say, Now concerning spiritual gifts. But if we could go back two months, and, and, and uh, I'm not going to go back and rehash all of it, but, but that's just not a great translation. It brings gifts in because that's, a, that's the topic in chapters 12, 13, 14. But its opening statement is now concerning spirituality or being spiritual. Paul is still addressing what it means to be spiritual. And the Corinthian cultural understanding of spirituality, that the goal of spirituality was to escape the body to be free from the body, to be without the trappings of the body. And so salvation, Corinthian culture understood salvation like this, to live a good enough life in the body to escape the body, to live a good enough life in the body to escape the body. So here was the Corinthian gospel. Every culture has had a gospel, a message that they think would bring about salvation. Here it was. It was do enough good while in the body to escape the trappings of the body and experience eternal spiritual Bliss and Paul is redefining the gospel from from something you do to a message you believe. He's redefining it from good advice on how to how to get salvation to a message that saves. The Corinthian gospel teaching on how to do enough. The Christian gospel a message to believe and to receive about Christ who did enough. But then, at the end of verse two, he has this this little phrase. He says, by which the gospel, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What, what does this mean? 
So I've always read the, if you hold fast, unless you believed in vain, I've always read that as a bit of like an emotional, like I've got to hold on tight. I've got to, I've got to have a tight grip, an emotional grip on the gospel, and that's what it means to hold fast. But Gordon Fee, uh, again, looks into this and says, hey, listen, in context, that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about some emotional, spiritual grasp on the gospel. What he says is that it's to believe in the gospel, but not in the resurrection, to hold fast to the teaching of Paul, the teaching that Paul came and gave to them, um, to, to not hold fast to that and therefore to believe in vain would have been to say, I believe in the gospel, but I don't believe in the resurrection. Which is why Paul is now going to uh, jump into uh, the more content of the gospel, if you will, because listen, no resurrection equals no Christianity. No resurrection equals no Christianity, and no resurrection means all of life is therefore lived in vain. So let's keep reading in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay, let's pause. There, there are um, three key words in this verse that to understand the gospel, to understand the Christian gospel, you have to understand these three words, and we've got to be on the same page uh, with all three of them. They're the words Christ, for, and sin. Christ, for, and sin. Do you notice it says um, that Christ died, not Jesus died? So, Jesus Christ is not a name, it's a name and a title. Christ is his title. Christ was the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior who would come and rescue his people and heal the broken world. And he came and he did that by coming and dying. And he was a Savior who died for, for, for our sin. The word for in English is a, it's a uh, pretty elastic word, right? We use it a lot of different connotations. Like, like we would say we are for the cowboys, right? Um, all of us would say that. Uh, we would, I wouldn't. They're not any good. If they were good, I would say it, but they're not. Um, but this is not an elastic term that Paul is using. He's using a very precise term. It's the word hupere. It's Paul's word for substitution. It's that Jesus died as a substitute, died as a substitute for our sin, that on the cross he was becoming sin. He was taking our place. He was our substitute on the cross, and in place of sin, sin that which separates man and God. Let's keep going, verse 4. That, so he died, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. Buried, raised, in accordance with the Scriptures. Two times he says this phrase. Two times Paul says in accordance with the Scriptures, and here's what's really, um, I, I think, highlighting about it. He uses the plural, so most of the time, he would say this um, in the, the right, like it would be in a singular, but here it's in a plural. And what's the, what's the point of that? The point is this, that while there are specific texts in the Old Testament, which is what he was referencing, that talk about the death of the Christ and the resurrection of the Christ, his point is that the sum total of the Old Testament is about the coming Messiah, the coming Messiah who would die and be raised from the grave. See, the resurrection proves two things. At least two things, but two things from our text, or more than two, but two from our text. One, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And then two, two, it proves that sin and death don't win, that sin and death do not win. And Paul is stepping in and saying, listen, no resurrection, death wins. Death wins, all of life is in vain. One of the things that I, I really appreciate, I've, I've mentioned this guy's name to you guys before, 
Luce Ferry, he's a, a French atheist philosopher. One of the things I appreciate about Luce Ferry so much is his intellectual integrity. Here's what I mean. He, he would say, I don't believe Christianity. But, but, but as a philosopher, this is an observation I've got for all of humanity. We, we all have these longings for um, how life should be uh, and this longing for, for, for um, how to deal with death. That all of humanity is trying to deal with death. And he would say this, only Christianity has good answers. Only Christianity has good answers. Because you know what we all want? We all want um, a, an eternal life with our loved ones, not disembodied floating spirits somewhere, but we want to be able to look and see our loved ones. And he would say, only Christianity says um, this can actually be possible, and it's possible because of a physical, eternal resurrection, a resurrection that if it did not happen, all of life is vanity, but if it did, none is. If the resurrection did not happen, all of life is in vain. But if the resurrection happened, if the grave of Jesus is empty, none of life is in vain. None of it. And so now he moves on to evidence for the resurrection. Verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. So in, in these three verses, um, Paul gives two proofs of the resurrection. One is uh, more intellectual and obvious. One is more emotional and subtle. So let's do the intellectual and obvious one first. Um, he says, um, hey, listen, there, there is a list of people that, that you can go and verify my message with. In fact, um, you can go from Peter to the disciples to a broader group of Christian missionaries to 500 people, most of them are still alive. If you want to know, is this true? You can go and ask them, and they will validate my um, claims here. And my, my question for Paul, if, if you want to learn how to read the Bible, sometimes just asking questions like, why is this in here? Why would this be in here? Why would this be included? I, I think that the reason Paul included this is because he knew that when he wrote this, one of the first objections was going to be, is there any evidence for this? Is there any proof of this? So here's what we see in Paul. Paul is not afraid of intellectual questions. Paul is not afraid of somebody who asks real questions and says, well, what about this? Can you give me some evidence for this? Do you notice that um, what's not in here is, hey, listen, this happens. And listen, if you don't believe it, you just need more faith. The problem is you lack faith. Now, that certainly could have been true for a lot of them but it's not what Paul says. He says, hey, listen, if you, if you want evidence, if you want proof, I understand. In fact, I would call that legitimate. Let me tell you where you can go and find it. Here's, here's what you can go and ask. I think Paul validates the legitimacy of asking honest questions about the claims of Christianity. One of our hopes for Sojourn, um, one of our hopes for Sojourn, this would be a community where we can ask honest questions, where it's safe to step into our community and say, hey, listen, I I'm, I'm curious, but I've got this question and this question and this question. We are not afraid of honest questions around here. We, we think that the Bible has really good answers to them. And we want to walk with you and walk together as a community, knowing that you and your questions will be honored and respected, and we are happy to dialogue about them. We want this to be a safe community to ask questions about our faith. But he doesn't stop there. Hidden inside this is a more subtle statement about um, emotional longings of humanity. Did you notice it says um, 
that there were uh, 500. Some are still alive, but most have died. Did y'all see that? Because it's not there. I just made that up. It says most have fallen, or some have fallen asleep. It does not say some are alive and some have died. It says some are alive and some have fallen asleep. Why, why do you think it says fallen asleep? Why is that there? Why not just have died? Um, let me answer it like this. Biblical sleep usually has negative connotations. Nightmares are not the only calamities that befall those who slumber. But Christians may sleep peacefully knowing that he who watches over Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. The Bible also uses sleep as a metaphor for the death of the righteous. Because, now listen to this, listen to this, because, because, in Christ, death is nothing more than a nap from which the righteous will awaken to endless day. In Christ, death is nothing more than a nap from which the righteous will awaken to endless day. There was a, uh, a song in 1991 uh, by a band called Boys to Men that came out. That isn't funny. You know, we're not even there yet. Um, <laughs> titled, uh, It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday. Emotional song. If you've never heard it, it is. You should go listen to it. As a seventh grader, I, I, would, I would cry hearing that song. If you repeat that, I will deny it and call you a liar. Um, in using the phrase fallen asleep, Paul is in no way minimizing the pain of death, and he is in no way minimizing the pain that comes at the funeral of a friend or a family when we look back at yesterday and know, know that we are saying goodbye to times past, and we're not going to get to live them again this side of the resurrection. Paul is fully aware of the pain that comes in that moment. Paul is fully aware that death is nobody's friend, which we are going to get to in two weeks. He is not minimizing the pain of death. What Paul is doing is saying that because of the resurrection, there is always tomorrow. Always. In Christ, there is always tomorrow because death is nothing more than a nap from which we will awake. The time between your funeral and your funeral is coming the time between my funeral and its coming and the resurrection is a nap from which we will awake. See, Paul's apologetic for the resurrection of Christ is both intellectual and emotional at the same time because Paul knows as well as anybody that we are holistic human beings. He knows that at the core of the Christian message is a Christ who died in our place, was buried and resurrected a resurrection that as painful as death is in Christ, it is nothing more than a nap from which you and I will awake one day. Which takes us to the next question. This is the content of the gospel that leads to the resurrection. So how therefore does the resurrection affect it today? What's the effect of the resurrection on us? Let's read in verse eight. Last of all, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 
whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Let me tell you what this is. This is Paul giving a testimony. In, in Christian circles, testimonies often go like this. We sit in a circle. Um, it can be awkward sometimes, not awkward, I, I don't know. And then we, we have somebody just tell the story of how God has shaped them and changed them. And this is my life um, before Christ. This is my life after Christ. This is my journey as I grew up in the church, and now I'm trying to navigate some of X, Y, or Z. We just tell the story of God in our life. This is Paul entering in and telling the story of how God has affected him. Why? Why? Because for Paul, the resurrection was not simply theological. It was deeply, deeply personal. It's personal because, you see, uh, there's one word that he used three times. Three times he used the word grace. Three times Paul used the word grace in the text. Grace, favor shown to people when they have no basis for receiving it. Paul is saying, listen, I, I am who I am by the grace of God. I am who I am by the grace of God. I am who I am by the grace of God. I have stopped trying to earn God's favor, and I am receiving it. This is Paul. This is Paul saying the grace of God has changed everything about my life. And man... If ever there was an understatement, the author of this letter, if, if you don't know um, Paul, when it says, I was a persecutor of the church, he, he was a murderer of Christians. He would show up at gatherings like this, round up Christians, and take them to their death. Paul, the author of this letter. And did you notice that it says, I persecuted? I was a persecutor, not I am a persecutor. Not I am. Not I am a persecutor, I was. Why? Here's what you'll see in Paul when you scan the New Testament and then explicitly here. You'll find a man willing to talk about his past. Honestly, open, transparent. Why? Because here's what Paul knew. Past sin, past mistakes, past failures do not create present identity, not for Christians. In Christ, I am who I am, not I am who I was. I am who I am, not I am who I was. And so if you're in here and you... Um, have been divorced, if you have been or are an addict, substance or porn, or you fill in the blank, or your life has been marked by depression, anxiety, crippling shame. Listen, your identity is not those things. You are not those things. Listen to me. If Jesus were still in the grave, and this life is all we had to live for, if it's all we had to live for, then yeah, you, your identity might be those things. You might be those things because we've got nothing else to live for other than this life. But if the grave is empty and it is, then your identity is not those things. They do not get to define you. But here's the question I had for this text as I was prepping for this. Here's what really leapt off the page at me. Why, why a testimony here? So if we could just kind of back up, pull back, and think for a second, Paul is writing to a community who, who are saying, we don't believe in the resurrection. And you know what Paul inserts? A testimony about grace. A testimony about how grace has changed him. Why would Paul, writing to a community who's saying, you know what, I, I don't really buy the resurrection, why would he insert a testimony about how the grace of God has changed his life? Here's what I think the answer is. Here's what Paul knows. 
He knows that if this community denies the resurrection, denying the resurrection will lead to a works righteousness every single time. It will go from I am who I am by grace to I am who I am by my effort, by my obedience, by my morality, by me being a better guy or better girl than the person next to me. He knows that when we earn our way, when our effort is to earn our way to God, what we are doing is putting Jesus back in the grave and we are functionally saying to Jesus, your life, your death, your resurrection, they simply aren't good enough. I need to add my works to it because here's what you are, Jesus. You are nothing more than another religious teacher who died. Nothing more than another religious teacher who died. And you're certainly not a savior who was resurrected from the grave. That's what he knows, which brings us back to Martin Lloyd-Jones' question, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Yes, how do you know? How do you know? I remember when I was asked the question for the first time, are you a Christian? My answer was something along the lines of, uh, yes, I think so. Sort of. Maybe. I don't really know. And Martin Lloyd Jones would say, if your answer to that question is anything other than yes, by the grace of God, 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 then you certainly don't understand the message of Christianity. You certainly do not understand what it is that you are saying that you believe if your answer is not yes, by the grace of God. And if you're not living by grace, actualizing grace in your life, you're treating Jesus like another teacher, someone who came along and said, go and do. Not someone who came and died in your place and was resurrected from the grave. And so here's a question for us as a community, as a church. If our lives are meant to be marked by grace, grace achieved by a Christ who came, died, and left the grave for us, what then... What then does it look like as a community, as a people, to live as if the grave is empty? What does it look like as a church, as a people, for you and I to live as if the grave is actually empty? I'm going to land the plane with a few takeaways. Here they are. I'm going to summarize them like this. See, search, find, run, pray, repent. I'll say them again. See, search, find, run, pray, and repent. One, see Christ as bigger than your circumstances. See Christ as bigger than your financial debt. See him as bigger than your uh, diagnosis. Jesus on the cross received the worst diagnosis you possibly could and was resurrected and overcame it. See him today as living, ruling, reigning, and bigger than your present circumstances. When we don't, you treat him like he's dead. Search, search for Christ in the Bible. Open the scriptures. Open the scriptures. Open them up and don't, don't treat it like a, a novel or a newspaper. Open it up like the self-disclosure of God and the redemptive work of Christ. Search for Christ on the pages. You don't, you don't have to fully understand everything in order to read the Bible, the, the Word of God um, that communicates the capital W, Word of God, Christ to us. Just open it up and let Christ encounter you through His pages, through His words. When you don't open the Scriptures and search for Jesus, you're treating Jesus like He is dead. Find Find Christ among his people. Find Christ in the church. Is the church perfect? Gosh, no. No. Are we perfect? Not even close. We are made up of us. Of course we're not. We're not even close. But you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, I dwell among my people. 
presence among them. Search and find him among his people. When you don't, we treat him like he's dead. It is the community of Christ. For run, run to the table. Every week, run to the communion table. Every week we finish and we go through an explanation and then we invite you to the table and we come to the table, run to the table, treat the table like he's actually alive. Like the table is more than just bread and a cup. Treat it like it is the body and blood of the living, ruling, reigning Christ who has come to commune and share a meal with you. Run to his table. Five, pray. Pray. Prayer is the most death-defying act you can possibly do. Praying to Jesus is a declaration that you are alive and you can hear my prayer. We don't, we don't pray to a dead God who can do nothing about it. As if prayer is just um, an emotional exercise for those of us in need. We're praying to a living Christ. When we say in Christ's name, praying to a living Christ, resurrected living Christ. And six, repent. Repent for treating him like he is still in the grave. Repent for not having looked on the empty grave and, letting it, and allowing it to redefine everything about your life. Not allowing it to redefine everything about your life. Repent for trying to earn your way to God. Instead of looking at the death and the resurrection of Jesus and knowing that he did all the earning you need. What, what am I trying to do with this list? Why am I landing the plane with a, with a list of things that, like this flying over them? Here, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show you, is this, the, is this list a sum total? Not even close. But I have to stop talking. Not even close. What am I trying to do? Here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show you that living like the grave is empty is not an aspect of the Christian life. It is the sum total of the Christian life. All of life is meant to be lived as if the grave is empty, Christ is alive. All of it. All that we have. All that we have because he died in our place, went into the grave, and did not stay there. All that we have. Some total of the Christian life lived in light of the living Christ who left the grave. And because he did, we can live by grace. Grace achieved through his resurrection. Grace guaranteed through his resurrection. And a grace that's not just past, but it's future. Because in two weeks, we're going we're gonna to open up the end of this chapter and we're going to say, oh, death, I know you're coming, but where is your sting? Where is it? Where is it? But we'll get there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this community. Thank you for this community where we can come and we can gather together week in and week out and we can know that we're doing this because you're alive. Because your son is alive, I'm sorry. Because your son came, lived, died, and left the grave. And so we can read texts about the resurrection of your son and we can read texts about our resurrection and know that none of life is in vain. None of it. There's nothing we do. We don't go to work in vain. We, we don't check our mail in vain. We don't change diapers in vain. We don't go on dates in vain. We, we don't mow our grass in vain. We don't do anything in vain because your son is alive right now. Would that redefine everything about our lives? Everything. But as a community, would we learn to take our cues from the Christ who is alive? not our city, not our neighborhood. What do we learn from your letter to the Corinthian church? 
where we are to take our communal cues from. And I know that there are some of us in this room who we are just have honest questions about what it is that we believe and why we believe it and how we can be so confident in this resurrection. I, I, I pray that they would know that this is a safe community, a safe place to step in and say, I've got questions and I'd love to be able to dialogue about them. I, I pray that they would know that this is a safe place to ask those questions because you're a safe God to come and ask questions too. That's why. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.